I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Ngunnawal people. I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We're just translators. So someone comes in, they speak a certain wine language, I've got my own particular language, and it's just about figuring out where the common ground is. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. James Dixon Hoyle is the Group Beverage Director of Such and Such. After originally stumbling into hospitality, he now strides and slides around some of Canberra's hottest venues, creating wine lists and sharing his passion of wine with avid diners. Welcome, James. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Shante. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm really thrilled to. We actually haven't crossed paths, but I want to hear all about you. Uh, Tell me about your first memory of wine. Oh, that's actually really an interesting one. I kind of came to wine quite late. I was very much into beer when I first started in hospitality. Wasn't super interested in wine. Um, But probably my first memory is the very classic Claire Valley Rieslings that my parents drank that I really did not enjoy. (laughs) Um, And then it probably wasn't until much later working in Melbourne where I kind of stumbled into Italian wine through Luke um, at Tipo Zero Zero. Um, And that's kind of really where the, the excitement took hold, I guess. Well, if you were really into beer, I can see that is definitely the gateway into getting more into uh, beverages in general. Now, you were working, before you're in hospital, you're working at Dan Murphy's, is that right? Was that just a way to try and, uh, you know, get a discount on beer? Um, a little bit, yeah. It was, I, my first jobs were stacking shelves in Coles. I did a little bit of call centre work, as you do when you're 18 and just want to make a bit of money. Um... And then one of my friends was working at Dan Murphy's and was like, it's great, you get a little bit of a discount, Um, it's just a nice place to work and we're hiring, do you want a job? And I was like, all right, sounds okay. Um, And then, yeah, was working there, had never planned to go into hospo um, and it wasn't until a restaurant not far from the Dan Murphy's was opening up and looking for staff. I was planning to go overseas and thought, all right, well, I can do day shifts at Dan Murphy's, cruise on to a night shift, make a bit of extra money. Um, And that's where it began. I love that. I mean, being able to stock shelves and, you know, having a love of beer, that you're kind of built for hospitality. The first restaurant you worked in, what was that first experience like? Um, It was quite funny, actually. Um, It was a restaurant called Mr. Bianco in Kew in Melbourne. And I originally was put into the bar, um, which was like a dispense bar. I don't know why they thought I'd be that great at that job, but I think maybe it was a bit of minimizing my greenness by hiding me somewhere. Um, But but very quickly, um, I think they realized I wasn't built for the bar and put me out on the floor. And it was a really fun place to work. It was... uh, Casual, but really high quality neighborhood restaurant. Um, I had a really good manager who just like took so much time to train me. Um, Yeah, it was a fun place. 
I think it's always, you know, quite eye-opening the first restaurant you work in, just the whole pace and everything's so different. You said you had a really great manager. That is a gift from God, especially when you are really green. What did um, that manager teach you in particular that you, that you, you know, take into your life now? Um, probably the most important thing was just like trying to remain calm. I think I had a tendency when I first went on the floor to try and go a million miles an hour and get a bit stressy. And he was really great at just being like, just take a second, like, yes, it's a fast pace, but you don't need to rush things. And actually it's better to just kind of take that breath and, um, yeah, just be like precise and considered in what you're doing as opposed to just, you know, screaming internally and running around. <laughs> I, I totally agree with that. It's almost like when you first, you know, get into restaurants is you, you can't believe, in my opinion, you can't believe how serious everybody is and how much of a big deal and everyone's so passionate that when something goes wrong or you, there's this panic mode that sets in, isn't there? And you're just kind of like, oh my God, it's the end of the world. And someone that's seasoned knows that it's like, okay, take a step back. Don't make more mistakes. Don't snowball it. Just chill out. <laughs> Yeah, the snowballing thing I've seen happen so many times, especially with, we have quite a few young staff working at both Pilot and here at Such. And sometimes on a busy night, you know, the pace picks up and you see them sort of make little mistakes that they never would otherwise. And it's just about kind of reassuring them. It's like, it's all good. We got this. Like, if you've got too much to do, one of us senior staff can like pick up some things. Um, don't, yeah, don't get too hung up on the problem and let it kind of spiral. Mm, I was terrible at that. I was such a perfectionist that if something went wrong, yeah, I was just a walking disaster. It took me a while to learn how to get out of that. Tell me about, um, uh, you, moved, you moved to London when you were 20, which is pretty young. What was that experience like? Really amazing and eye-opening. Um, I had no real plans apart from I was going there um, and I just again hadn't intended to work hospitality over there but all the jobs that I saw were in that space um, and ended up working at this really like small neighborhood burger shop which had like a big dine-in space um, which was just like I think that was the first time I saw the fun side of hospitality because it was a little bit less serious and it was like, oh, everyone's just here having a great time. I really like this. Um, and from there, ended up moving into like some gastro pubs, um, was lucky enough to have a really great owner um, at this place called the Princess of Shoreditch who was a very intense but very knowledgeable uh, Swedish woman who'd come from Michelin stars and was then doing the pub thing. Um, and I went for, I was terrified at first, but very quickly realized that she was super keen to like impart all of her knowledge. Um, and I think that's a bit of a theme I've had is like had really good managers who are just like willing to take the time to share what they know and what they have. Um, and it's something that's definitely stuck with me through my career for sure. 
Wow, that's like so incredibly lucky. I feel like people like that are a bit like teachers, you know, you normally in your school life, you have that one teacher you remember, but being able to have multiple managers that kind of mentored you. And, and like you said, they see such a big picture, don't they? It's not just one one avenue. They're seeing the whole working counterpart. So, um, so much wisdom that they can impart. You returned uh, back to Australia in 2013, and then you just proceeded to hit up all these amazing venues like Estelle and St. Crispin and Tipo, and you even went into buying beer for a little bit as well. What was your thought process when you kind of came back Are you and you wanted to kind of get more experience in Australia? What, why did you choose those venues? Um, when I came back, I was sort of umming and ahhing uh, whether I'd go to uni or not and just made a decision. I was like, no, I want to really try this hospitality thing and we'll just like seek out a really good place to work and just like try and like take that next step and see if it fits. And so I'd heard about Estelle um, through some friends, just applied and ended up at first just doing like a couple of casual shifts there. Um, and that was just around the time St. Crispin had opened. Um, and eventually they just said, look, we can't give you full time here, but we've got this new venue. I think you'd be great there. And went to St. Crispin. And again, was lucky enough to meet Luke, who, um, who now owns Tipo. And yeah, just kind of rolled with, rolled with it. Wow. Well, I mean, just so I love all of those places to eat, but also, you know, uh, love their philosophies as well. What struck you most, most uh, about the differences between kind of hospitality in London and then in Melbourne? Did you see like a stark difference in the approach or, you know, what, what was your kind of mindset when you kind of went in? Um, I guess like the main difference, and like I didn't have a huge amount of experience at the sort of higher end in London. Um, but even so, when I came back, I definitely noticed the that London has a much more like serious, not serious, that's the wrong word, but a much more formal style of service in everywhere I'd worked. It was like less, uh, less chatty. It was, to be honest, a little bit less fun. Um, <laughs> and that was something I really loved about St. Crispin was there was so much thought and seriousness put into the wine and the food and the service but you can sit and have like a real casual chat with someone and you're not going to be told off you're not going to be told off for having a sip of water behind the bar where the guests can see you you know that like just it just felt like we could be more ourselves on the floor which I really loved it's such a simple thing, isn't it? I remember when I worked in my career on the floor too and we were never allowed to drink water. And one day, you know, when I finally went, you know, we're human too, for God's sake. We're here for 16 hours on our feet. Drinking water in front of people shouldn't be shunned. And I remember being like, stop, stop hiding. Stand up, drink your water, hydrate. Yeah, surely no one's going to see you drinking water and be like, how dare they? <laughs> I know. Exactly. Now, you studied a master's in climate change. What a valuable and fascinating degree. How has that um, learning inspired you with what you do now? Um, it was an amazing degree. Uh, 
some days I felt like I was paying to be traumatized, but it was, <laughs> there was a lot of positives that came out of it too. Um, I guess my kind of approach and feeling around beverages at the moment is really focusing on the fact that it is at the end of the day, like an agricultural product first. Um, and that's really just been one of the most important principles for me when doing my buying is like seeking out people that do really consider the long-term health and future of the land on which they're operating. Um, what style of wine they produce out of those grapes maybe is less important to me, but yeah, I think I've always just kept that little checklist of like, all right, uh, who are they? Like, how do they approach their position in the landscape? How does the broader wine industry like impact like the environment, the food system? So it's sort of always in the background, I guess. I feel like sustainability is such a hot topical word at the moment and it's almost on every single website that you look on every winery's label and you know there are those people out there that um are really doing more than what is expected of them and I think that you know you only learn that with digging a little bit deeper and knowing more about the wineries that you that you're talking about don't you because it, it's kind of just a word that anyone can put on their label at the moment yeah the sustainability like wording is such a like clouded clouded one and I think especially in Australia where you know wine is still a pretty new thing to the landscape in the broader picture um, and just trying to like yeah dig through the the messaging sometimes of what's out on people's like websites labels in trade brochures it's like okay but what are they actually doing in the vineyard you know is their entire property uh wine is there like interspersed pockets of native vegetation like how real how far are people taking this idea of really like cultivating a sustainable position for their operation um yeah that's kind of one of the the biggest things i've really been trying to look for is people that kind of integrate their winery into a broader landscape and don't just go okay we're wall-to-wall vines uh but where we don't use sprays you know because at the end of the day if 100 percent of the landscape was vines managed in an organic certified way it'd still be pretty terrible for the landscape so like that bigger picture stuff is quite an important thing I think yeah you said that really well um you know at the end of the day real estate and and land it's so um it's so valuable and there are plenty of wineries out there that actually make sacrifices for their bottom line based on on what it will do for the future and um you know, just hats off to, to those wineries and a lot of them which are on your wine lists. Uh, talk me through how you select wines for your wine lists and the importance of, you know, highlighting emerging regions as well as kind of some of those more classical regions that guests are kind of expecting. I guess such has been a bit of a, such and such has been a bit of a new experience. Um, I've been doing the wine at Pilot now for almost three years and 
almost by necessity, the, the restriction we placed on ourselves to only do Australian wine kind of meant that just for the staff's excitement and for my, my personal like excitement, digging into the corners was necessary to have a big list or like a, a nice size list that wasn't just all the same. Um, and I guess I've tried to take that approach to such and such. So yes, there is Burgundy, but we're trying to find producers in Burgundy who follow the same philosophy we like require for domestic producers. Um, and I don't know, I just like, I really enjoy the exploration and discovery of little regions, um, small cultures that have their own like intertwined history of producing a particular thing. Um, yeah, and just like sharing that excitement with people and kind of both people coming in to drink and dine and also with the staff here and just being like, hey, there are all these incredible things around the world that you can share with people. Um, and just trying to find a way to make them not seem intimidating, I guess, is the, the main thing. Um, yeah, and that and a lot of reading. <laughs> That's about it, really. Yeah, you can't get away from the reading, unfortunately. It is always going to be there. <laughs> James, I'm... No, I was just going to say, I'm getting a bit of interference. I don't know if it's maybe um, your ear on the phone, but it's just kind of crackling up the sound, Just so just be careful of that. Just because I don't want to miss anything that you say because it's all so valuable <laughs> when you have to repeat it, that's all. Um what was my next question? Oh, I've completely thrown myself off now. Sorry. <laughs> um, when you say, you know, trying to communicate with um, diners and your guests, but also your staff as well, how do you make, you know, the world of wine not intimidating? How do you kind of bridge that barrier with um, in an approach to staff, but also to, to diners? This is actually something I was thinking about. I had to listen to some of the previous podcasts, including the one with Dan Sims and talking about communication. And one of my really good friends down in Melbourne, who I used to work with that's in Crispin, we always talked about it as like, we're just translators. So someone comes in, they speak a certain wine language. I've got my own particular language and it's just about figuring out where the common ground is. Um, and not making people feel like they have to speak the way I speak or like, um, or the way I've been trained or the way I've learned. Um, the way they speak is equally as valuable and we just need to figure out how we can kind of communicate together. So uh, that can be, okay, this person wants to know all the tech details, they wanna be talked to uh, in like a very formal space, cool, let's go that way. If someone asks about a wine and they just really want to hear, yep, this is like effing delicious, uh, it's like summertime in a bottle, that's also as valuable. And it's just about kind of figuring out those spaces where people feel comfortable. And yeah, I guess that's kind of it, really. 
I love that analogy. That's fantastic because if you think about a really good translator, it's not like um, GP chat or, or Google Translate in that, in that you're just picking the words that, that someone said. You're trying to get a sense of what they're trying to communicate, aren't you? So, you're, you know, from one culture to another, they have completely different ways of kind of asking a, a question. But if you can get to the core of what you're trying to say, I really love that. I, I'm going to steal that if you don't mind, because I think that's fantastic. <laughs> um, you value mentorship and guiding young minds kind of along the way. How do you foster a relationship with up and coming staff members? Because I really think that, you know, for the future of hospitality is so important to take people that have an interest and see them on their way. But just like a lot of avenues, it's not always a clear cut path. So how do you go about doing that with your staff? Uh, I think the first thing is trying to like find the things that excite them uh, about the whole operation, what their little because everyone has like a different thing that grabs them, I think. Um, and I think that's the most important part is like just paying attention to the young staff. Um, some of them won't be interested in wine at all. They'll just like the camaraderie or they'll like the energy. And it's like, okay, well, let's, let's work with you on that and let's try and foster that. And then kind of slowly build the knowledge along the way. Um, so I think that for me is the most important thing is just trying to like, in the same way we all try and read the guests that come in, just read the younger staff and kind of help foster their excitement because if they want to learn and you're open and make it known that you're open to teach, then I feel like people will really like be engaged and be energized as opposed to feeling like they're being lectured <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right because that can fall on deaf ears as we know, if you're just constantly hearing somebody correcting and, and, you know, just telling you to do it a different way, you just stop hearing it eventually. But, you know, I've, I, I've met, um, you know, young professionals where perhaps they, you know, worked part-time, in a fine dining restaurant because they enjoyed the atmosphere, but they, you know, had another career goal and they were at uni and they could do it with their eyes closed. But I've also met young professionals that desperately wanted to make a career, you know, within hospitality, but that really needed a lot of work. And all of them are so valid and so important to, um, to just keeping that wheel turning, aren't they? So, you know, wherever you come from, you need to be able to just work with different humans, don't you? hundred percent. And I think like, what you said, all of these young staff coming in, whether they are, yeah, just a casual, who's gonna be a casual for maybe in their mind the next couple of years, or whether they are like, really, I wanna dive deep into this. Like, those are all people who deserve attention and like engagement in their learning process. Um, and it's just exciting to see how far people come when you give them what they're asking for or what they need uh, and yeah it's just like an awesome thing to see because like I was lucky enough to get that in my career and so I think it's important to pass that on yeah I totally agree with you and that's really well said James um, tell me what is exciting you that's happening in Canberra in terms of the beverage scene at the moment oh um, 
A lot. <laughs> um, I mean, I, as someone born in Melbourne, I had a pretty poor opinion of Canberra before I came here. And um, it's just been... <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I was very quickly proved wrong. And I, I'll admit that. Um, and I think it's just amazing to see, like, the energy there is around Canberra. And I think something that's really exciting too is um, the energy amongst people coming into Dine. Um, there's people seem so open to trying new things, finding uh, new venues and all these like weird things that I've accidentally bought after work on a Saturday because it sounded really <laughs> interesting and people are open to it. Um, there doesn't seem to be the same like, oh no, we only drink this that I've come across in other places. Um, so I think that helps the scene too because we can push the boat a bit further because customers and diners will roll with us. Um, yeah. Well, that says a lot about the trust that they have in you and uh, that open communication that you so clearly demonstrate, which is really wonderful. Uh, James, if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? All right. So I actually, when I, uh, I found out I was going to be asked this question, the first two came really easily. Um, so uh, Saison Dupont, like forever and always will be like something that's in the fridge just as a delicious beverage in general. Um, like a dry martini because I couldn't go without. Um, the wine one is actually the hardest one because uh, I feel like I always go through different phases, but probably like a sparkling rosé. It just, it just works always. Uh, I don't have a particular one, um, but I just feel like the spectrum from really playful and like bright to quite serious and structured in sparkling rosé just like yeah that that's kind of where I'm at <laughs> I love that because I, I totally agree with you sparkling rosé whether it be champagne grower champagne big maison some gorgeous arras whatever it is that really hits kind of red berry notes and savory and it can fit wherever in a meal it can be the last kind of drink of the night you could have it with some beautiful gamey kind of meats you know pork it goes with a bit of everything and so I love that because you're kind of finding something that fits all the boxes but is just also delicious on its own yeah I agree it's just like we've we've, <laughs> paired, we've paired sparkling rosé at pilot a couple of times with savory dishes and I don't know it's just it's just something I always want to drink <laughs> mm -hmm. and I always love going to restaurants where um the pairing surprises me and I'm not always just having bubbles followed by Riesling followed by you know a skin contact and a Chardonnay and then a Pinot and a red and it's so nice when you go oh how about a little you know fizz around about now I'm always like yes yes let's do that in saying that Saison de Pont that amazing Belgian seasonal ale never goes astray so I think uh, we align I love it <laughs> <laughs> awesome well James the young professionals of Canberra are in very good hands with you thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your insights today 
thanks so much for having me on. It was, it was heaps of fun. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.